Right, thank you very much. Um, as you've understood from the previous two speakers, uh, you've had the big picture from James, um, a big UK focus from uh, Nick, and now I'm going to come down much more to the level of uh, us at the household uh, and how we use energy in our everyday lives. Um, uh, you can see my name is Brenda Boardman. I've now retired. I've been here at the uh, University of Oxford since 1991, working in the Lower Carbon Futures Group, which is what Nick now heads. So, and all of that time, and from a bit before, I've focused on how we use energy, um, which was a slightly surprising thing for Oxford to find itself researching. But um, uh, gradually, they've got used to us working in the Environmental Change Institute on environmental issues. So we're quite happy to talk about the changes in Oxford as well as our own research interests. I'm, not, I'm, I'm doing the UK. I'm looking at the 50% of energy that uh, we use as individuals, and particularly that part that we look at and use within our own homes. Uh, this is how we use it. Um, and in terms of energy, 60% approximately goes on space heating. 20% in hot water. And those are the two that mainly use gas. And if, as uh, Nick was talking about insulation levels, that will largely reduce your space heating. And if you put in a condensing boiler, that reduces both of those because they've got a more efficient use of gas. The remaining 20% that we use in lights and appliances is almost exclusively electricity. And very, very roughly, a fifth of that you use in lighting, a fifth in what they call the cold appliances, fridges and freezers. Uh, a fifth in how you use your washing machine, tumble dryer and dishwasher. Um, a fifth in IT, home computers, TVs, uh, sound systems. And a fifth for cooking. And that includes oddities like the microwave and the kettle. So that, and I'm now just going to give you a bit more information, um, in particularly in relationship to that 20% of electricity. Um, and as James said, we, we frequently focus on electricity in many of our debates. Um, the nuclear, the renewables, etc., are all electricity generating. I'm focusing a little bit on the electricity and how we use it. But before I do that, in the average household, I've just shown you very approximately uh, the gas and electricity usage. They're not quite the boundaries, as I was saying. They're, they're, they're just sort of nearly there. But 75% of the energy we use is gas. Uh, and only 25% is electricity. But because we have to generate electricity in a power station, that makes it much more carbon intensive because two-thirds of the energy on, in the traditional power stations is wasted in the cooling towers. So the carbon intensity of electricity is much greater. So if you were to divide your carbon emissions between gas and electricity, they're very nearly half. And for exactly the same reason, the cost is nearly half. Very interesting if when you um, return home and you look at your gas and electricity bills, just to find out how much you pay on each and see whether my uh, average numbers are at all appropriate for you. Um, because electricity is generated in um, power stations and because those can be a completely different mixture of fuels and because the people that supply that electricity to us, the electricity to France, the Scottish Power, the RWE, whoever it is you buy yours from, they purchase 
different combinations of power generation and therefore sell you electricity with different types of um, carbon intensity because of the mixture. So what you've got here is, of the big six, and I've just picked out EDF and Scottish Power, as the cleanest in CO2 terms. And why is it clean? Because it uses a high degree of two-thirds as uh, nuclear. Almost all of the big six have to use the same amount of renewables because they have an obligation. If you didn't want to buy nuclear and you bought Scottish Power you would be buying something which is much more CO2-intensive, but you wouldn't be supporting the nuclear industry. Um, The other four are in between. If you really worried about climate change and didn't like nuclear, uh, you could go for something which is uh, 100% renewables, like good energy, and that is no CO2 emissions and no nuclear. And that's the UK average along the bottom. You can switch. I mean, almost all of the debates about U-switch and others are along the lines of price. This information, and I've given you the website along the bottom, and it's not easy to find, but it... <laughs> oh, dear, sorry, I've gone back the wrong way. Um, here we go. Electricityinfo.org, supplier data. You have, to, you have to search for it. It's a bit more available these days, but... Um, you could switch on the basis of what electricity industry you want to support and the extent to which you want to begin to change the uh, climate change impact of your actions through um, the electricity you purchase. Unfortunately, um, it's just too little known about. The information is meant to be supplied to you once a year on the back of your bills or with your bills, but most people haven't noticed that. It may not even have been there. Um, So one of the things that I would certainly uh, suggest you do is you get a little bit more familiar than you possibly are with your own electricity consumption or gas consumption or both. So, for instance, the average home in the UK uses 10 kilowatt hours of electricity per day just in lights and appliances. Obviously, if you're going to start using your electric immersion heater to heat up your hot water, it's going to be more than that. See if you can get it down to five... The Boardman household has got down to six. Um, And we're about to go lower because we've got CFLs in all of our light fittings, compact fluorescent lamps, those sort of folded tube things. And we're now about to put in LEDs into a lot of them. Whether that will get us down to five, I don't know. It's not easy. And it does involve a huge number of small choices and small actions, like turning the lights off. We're we're fairly manic about turning the lights off. (laughs) Um, but, but that's something you could do um, quite easily without involving capital expenditure. You don't have to transfer to LED lights. You can just think about um, how much you might be wasting turning off your standby, etc. Um, one of the things that we've done at the uh, University of Oxford is produce a thing called iMeasure, and there's some leaflets up the front about it. And iMeasure is an absolutely free way of um, joining up with a website and putting in every week your meter readings. You get a nice little email to remind you to do it, so it's not too difficult. And this is, again, the Boardman household. So what you can see is that across the whole year, and that's um, 14 months I've got there, our electricity consumption is remarkably similar. Our gas consumption, however, 
uh, is very much higher in the winter. And interestingly, it's zero during the summer. We do not use gas during the summer. That's because we have solar... Oh, sorry, somebody's naughty. Uh, that's because we have um, solar panels on our roof that heat hot water. So we turn the gas boiler off somewhere around April, May, and we turn it on. We haven't quite turned it on properly. If it was raining the other day, I'd put it on, but, but we still haven't put it on properly. And we, so somewhere around September, October. So we have zero gas because the sun is shining. As James said, that's an important thing. Now, I find these things absolutely fascinating, whether you do is up to you, but it's quite, it's quite a nice way of easily tracking, and that graph comes in, out of eye measure. Um, it requires you to keep your information going for a year. Uh, just some of the things you can do. Those are the uh, compact fluorescent lamps, and now what we're going to is light-emitting diodes, LEDs, and uh, those reduced our consumption of electricity over the incandescence um, to about a quarter, and these get down to a tenth of the old incandescent. Uh, and there's some very good and attractive lighting coming up um, through those now. With your appliances, these, everybody, I hope, is familiar with those labels. This is, this is on uh, a fridge freezer, I think. One of the things that I want to point out is that just because it's an A+, doesn't necessarily mean it's low energy. This happened to be a rather big fridge freezer, and some of the ones that they're selling us these days, the double doors, etc., are extremely large. If they are that big, they're going to be using more energy, even if they're A+, or A++, in terms of labels. So you've got to be a little bit savvy about not being pushed by the manufacturers just to buy big ones, because that's what they'd like you to buy. Uh, things like uh, dishwashers um, and tumble dryers, try to use as little as possible. Um, I know that it's not always sunny to put the, the clothes out, and sometimes it decides to rain while you're at work, which is very irritating, but um, use those as little as possible. This is actually a plasma TV. Um, plasma TVs use about four times more energy than a liquid crystal display, an LCD. Um, so if you're um, going to buy one, think about it. And LCDs are going to go down in uh, their electricity consumption. So there's various ways in which we can be careful about what we buy and how we use it. Um, the other thing I was just going to mention in terms of uh, general issues is the whole issue of fuel poverty. And that's one area I've worked on. I did my doctorate on it and um, have recently produced a second book. And I've got a flyer about that, which is the, the cover, as you can see. And again, they're here. Because the problem of people being unable to afford adequate warmth and energy services in their homes is growing it's at least one in five of the households, if not one in four of the households at the moment. And with the present squeeze on incomes and the uh, quite substantial price increases that are still being announced in fuel prices, we expect fuel poverty to go up, um, unfortunately, fairly fast. Now, uh, m those of you who've recently bought or uh, moved into a new property will have seen the energy label that goes on the home. That's called the Energy Performance Certificate. 
It's this side here that I'm particularly referring to. Uh, and it labels every home, just like your fridge, just like your washing machine, just like your light bulb, from A, good, to G, bad. And this is a fairly poor quality one. It's an F-rated property. Those are basically unhealthy. They sh you shouldn't really be living in them. They're too expensive to heat for anything like a reasonable amount of money to a reasonable extent. Uh, if you're going to take... And that, unfortunately, is where half of the fuel poor live at the moment. Um, if you were going to take a household out of fuel poverty, you'd have them in a home that was an A or B rated. Because, obviously, the smaller your income, uh, the less you've got as your 10% for fuel, and that means it's got to be super energy efficient. A brand new home today would be about a B. For climate change purposes... By the end of 2050, we all ought to be A, and absolutely at a minimum of B. So we all, every one of us, has a huge task if what we're going to do is improve the quality of our housing and reduce demand and produce less carbon emissions. The fuel poor are fuel poor because they have a combination of low income and energy-inefficient housing. The darker the colour, the greater the fuel poverty. This is, this is fairly schematic. I'm not suggesting that half of the households in Britain are in fuel poverty yet, but half the households in, uh, in, half the households in Northern Ireland are. Um, so they're thinking of changing the definition. Um, <laughs> um, it sort of happens with governments. Um, what is really difficult, if you're on a low income, even if you're in a reasonably energy-efficient home, it's extremely difficult to provide adequate energy services and enough warmth for the money that you've got in a home that is reasonably energy-efficient in the UK at the moment. This is actual data. It's not what we would like it to be. If you're on a high income and in a poor-quality home, you can afford to take yourself out of fuel poverty and to waste a lot of fuel. So fuel poverty is um, about this really difficult combination of social factors and housing factors and energy brought together. It's part of the reason that uh, within lower carbon futures we like doing interdisciplinary work um, with things like this. It's quite challenging. So just to bring together what uh, are the synergies between fuel poverty and climate change, in the UK the poorest people are concentrated in the worst housing. So if what we want to do is get rid of fuel poverty, we need to upgrade those homes to being super energy efficient and low carbon housing. And that will have an impact on our carbon emissions across the country. There is a legal obligation on the government, the Warm Homes and Energy Conservation Act uh, 2000, which says that fuel poverty is to be eradicated brackets as far as is reasonably practicable. Um, and maybe everything is reasonably practicable if you wanted to by 2016. That would require, as I said, every household to have about a SAP of 81 to be an A or B rated property. That's 850,000 properties every year from now onwards. If what we want to do is insulate, double pun meant, uh, our fuel poor from fuel price rises and being cold. 
And for climate change purposes, by 2050, because we've got 26 million households to deal with, we've got to raise them to a sap of 100 at a, at a rate of 650,000 a year. So dealing with fuel poverty is actually the sort of precursor to dealing with climate change. So there are quite a lot of issues. Um, the other, only other thing I've put down here on the front is the um, executive summary from a report that I did uh, called Home Truths for Friends of the Earth and um, the Cooperative Bank about how to get an 80% reduction in carbon emissions. 80% um, is not enough yet, but um, it's still some of the information that you might be interested in. Thank you.